Welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Before we get into this episode, Dan and I are calling out all of you leadership educators. Are you struggling to spice up your learning activities? Do you need somebody to bounce your ideas off of that has no stakes in the game? Meaning they're not your students, they're not your faculty peers, they're not your dean? Well, connect with us for expert guidance on creating engaging and inclusive classroom learning environments. Are you an academic leader seeking a program reviewer? Dan has availability this semester and would love to help you elevate your approach with customized feedback on your program. You can reach out to both of us through LinkedIn today. Welcome to season nine of the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. This season, we're discussing generative learning for leadership educators. This is an approach to leadership development and education that focuses on cultivating generative thinking and behaviors in leaders. Generative thinking is the ability to create new possibilities think systemically, and generate innovative solutions to complex problems. It involves shifting from a reactive or problem-solving mindset to a proactive and creative mindset. And generative leadership education, and perhaps generative followership education as well, but we'll get to that in a moment, aims to develop leaders who can navigate uncertainty, inspire collaboration, and create positive change in their organizations and communities. This approach often involves experiential learning, reflection, and the development of such skills like systems thinking, adaptive leadership, and emotional intelligence. Uh, we know our audience is familiar with a lot of those concepts, so our hope is that we bring guests to chat about how they're thinking about these things and how they're doing post-pandemic. So we've invited leadership and followership educators, uh, faculty and other disciplines as well, who have won some awards for their teaching and their scholarship. Uh, we're also going to chat with folks that are exploring artificial intelligence, ethics, social phenomenon, uh, disruptions, and adaptive challenges, as well as other emerging trends and issues that are affecting leaders in these spaces. So we're broadly asking the question this season, how are we processing what's happening and affecting our classrooms and campuses as we're trying to develop curriculum, teach, evaluate leadership and followership learning, and build community? You know, we've been fortunate this year to have so many wonderful guests, and today's guest is no exception. We have Dr. Wendy M. Edmonds, Interim Chair and Assistant Professor in the Department of Management, Marketing, and Public Administration in the College of Business at Bowie State. She is the past chair of the Followership Learning Community at the International Leadership Association and the current co-chair of the 2024 Global Followership Conference. In our episode today, we'll ask Wendy about her research on toxic followership and the Jonestown Massacre. She's the first researcher to conduct focus group studies with the survivors of the 1978 Jonestown Massacre that occurred in Guyana. It was that life-changing event that fueled her interest in toxic followership and the various perspectives of the leader-follower relationship. Welcome to the show, Wendy. 
Thank you. And thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure, Wendy. It's uh, really exciting to, to have you on. It's been a pleasure getting to know you through the followership community and some of those global followership Zoom calls that we did during yes. the pandemic <laughs> and um, seeing you at the uh, global followership conference earlier this year and at, over at Christopher Newport University. And just uh, you bring a wealth of knowledge to this to this topic. And uh, one of the areas of your scholarship that, that I really admire is your examination of this phenomenon that you've referred to, or they perhaps you've, you even coined called toxic followership. I'd love if you start a little bit just by you know sharing a little bit about yourself and how you got into studying followership. And then um, love to um, hear a little bit about what is that concept uh, of, of toxic followership? Sure. So I will say that uh, I really got interested in toxic followership as a doctoral student, but it didn't start there. It started when I was in high school and I remember turning on the TV and so many dead bodies and I did not understand it because we didn't have maybe one TV in the house at the time, right? It wasn't where there's a, a TV everywhere. and I, I just didn't understand what could have happened. And it really didn't happen in the United States, but we were so affected by it because they were American citizens. And what I was looking at were the Jonestown massacre. It was an incident where um, a white minister, Jim Jones, had lured his congregation, at the time was a megachurch, over to Guyana, and ended up having them to drink a poisonous drug. And it was a murder-suicide. It was the first of, of its kind that we had ever um, experienced in, in the United States. And what people don't realize is that there were 918 lives that were lost that day, and a third of those were children. So that was something that, you know, I always remember my mother saying, I was so sad, like I just had so many questions and not only could she and my dad, they couldn't answer them, but no one was answering the, the questions that I had. So fast forward, when I'm in my doctoral program, we had um, a, a new coordinator, program coordinator or the director of the program anyway, it was um, Dr. Karen Klenka who had been to ILA and was just really excited about followership. And we expressed that interest. And I thought that's definitely it. At the same time, there was a documentary that was supposed to come on television and Soledad O'Brien, who is my hero, she doesn't know that, but if you ever see her, let her know <laughs> because she was doing a documentary. And as I was washing the dishes or something, I heard her say she was going to interview the survivors of the Jonestown massacre. And I thought, survivors? I never knew all these years that anyone had, had survived uh, that tragedy. And so I definitely wanted to see the documentary. I watched some of it, fell asleep. I was the student, the mommy, the wife, the everything. So by the time I finished coming home from work, I, I didn't have time to watch TV and fell asleep on it. But what it made me wonder was, what if I could talk to those survivors? What would that mean to followership? 
uh, for what I was studying and what I knew at the time. And, you know, we're talking, you know, the early 2000s. So um, there were definitions, but not necessarily relating to this type of followership. And um, I thought I was so dead, O'Brien, thank you very much. And I began to try to contact those <laughs> survivors. I didn't get a pleasant response, which was the first shock. And as a researcher, I learned real quick that you better do some research and understand what you're asking, why you're asking, and why you're receiving those responses. And that's what I did. And I and as I did that, um, and it took weeks, there was one person that responded. And we all know the term about snowballs sampling. I lived it. it, it anyone who even goes down that road, you have to have a lot of patience because it, it takes time to build that trust. It takes time to develop relationships when you're dealing with a sensitive population. And so there was a level of, I would say, testing, um, not in a negative way, but they wanted to ensure that I was doing this for educational purposes and not to, to exploit them. They have already had that experiences over the you know many years and they were not going down that road again. So one person referred me to one other person and then after they built trust, it was one other person. So this just went on and on. But it was really a good thing for me to learn um, from a research perspective what that entails. You know, real quick, my when you first started saying that, my IRB, like red flag started going off, like sensitive population. Oh, yeah. And I was in my head. I was like, you are like, you need to do a separate on how to get an IRB passed around this and get your, because, because it just seems like everything they say, like not, not to do, but be cautious about this, be cautious about this Yeah. in that one study. What's funny about that is even when I had a, applied for the IRB and, you know, you have to take the little, the, the exam before and pass and get the certificate before you can apply for the IRB. How about I sent mine in and on the section where it says, will there be any um, notable harm, you know, to any other participants? What are you going to do to alleviate that? I was like, I don't know. No, this happened in 1978. Of course not. Can I tell you that came back with big red ink, red flag, don't try it, um, sit down and rethink this before I could even... I mean, I was I was shocked. Like, how did I how did I miss that? And what I didn't realize was that harm doesn't look like what we are taught harm looks like with the Tuskegee uh, experience, right? With the Henrietta Lacks incident, we don't we don't look at that. But when you are talking about re-traumatizing because you're asking people to bring up those stories that can bring about emotion that's what you have to understand and um the beauty about focus groups i eventually did get um into the um get enough responses to have uh two focus groups so i went underground for two weeks um in california and what was interesting about that is 
that, you know, when I say underground, it's because it was a non-disclosed location that we held the focus groups because there is a level of privacy that I had to respect with the survivors. Some people don't want to be known as a former member of, you know, Jonestown because of the negative connotation, right? Because of the fear that, oh my goodness, you were one of them. Um, can this happen to you again? Uh, what happens if I make you angry? I mean, there's all kinds of, of, of things this brought up. And so for that reason, um, we went to a disclosed location to, to, to hold the focus group. What I will say is the difference. And I always, when I talk about um, qualitative research, as, as instructors in the classroom, or if you're conducting any type of workshop, you really want to bring about what that experience is like. So we had the whole theoretical term, you know, the, the, the richness of, you know, everyone having their different opinions, make sure you avoid any of the group think. None of that happened. None of that happened. Instead, I experienced the magic in, in um, holding the focus groups. And by magic, I mean, I had people who had the same experience on the same day, were affected in the same manner, the loss of life and loved ones. And we're talking about generations, not just one, but generations um, were, were, were lost that day. But what happened is that there were people who were in the room that were able to fill in the missing pieces that, that were lost on that day, November 18, 1978. They were able to say, oh no, I saw your sister. Oh no, that's not what happened. They were able to fill in. And so imagine what that was like at, with the emotion in the room as well, that there were tears of joy, there were tears of anger, thinking that things could have been done differently, you know, the hindsight uh, always, um, the the grief. So all of those emotions play. So I learned, I think I learned more than what was in the, the textbooks that we from. So I always say it was a rich experience for me. Yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing the the background there and the evolution of this absolutely extensive and, and deep research project. And Karen Klenke is a great one to to have as a as an advisor through that. I remember coming across her text on qualitative research and leadership. Oh yes. And saw oh, her yes. yeah and saw her speak at a ALE conference um I think in Chicago. She was at that one and we've used her text as well. And it's interesting to see how, I mean, not even interesting, it's maybe now more obvious to understand from this recount that you shared about how this phenomenon or, or perhaps, you know, grounded theory of this idea of toxic followership would emerge from, from talking to these, to these survivors and the intense experience that you had with them. I, I guess my questions would be, could you elaborate a little bit on like, how, how do you now understand or if you were describing toxic followership to someone who uh, was learning this for the first time, how would you describe that? And, and how do you think that phenomenon has evolved or become more apparent as we fast forward to, to where we are today in 2023? 
Yeah, whenever I, I use the word followership, one of the things that I heard Barbara Kellerman say early on when I was studying followership is whenever you're speaking about followership, make sure you put it in the context of which you're speaking about. And that that was really key for me. And, and I have remembered that for so long. It's just that when you first say the word, people always think, I'll say like, oh, you mean fellowship? No, no, followership. Can you spell that? Right? So we have to explain what that means. So the long drawn out uh, definition is toxic followership is the manipulation of individuals by a trusted party who transforms the mindset of others whereby individuals become an extension of a toxic leader's moral decay. In short, I say, why do people follow bad people? And that's what people remember. You have to write down the, the textbook definition, but people understand what it means when you say, why do people follow bad people? And so as this had evolved, because in the beginning, when I was presenting, people weren't interested in toxic followership. They were speaking of toxic and followership in general, but not toxic followership to the extent that I had studied it. So I always looked like the researcher with the elbow hanging out the forehead in the room trying to right, get that understanding. And and it wasn't always accepted because where did I fit in? But I always remember that Arichayo had said, continue to write. And, and it was true that I lived by that. And um, he's an awesome mentor because that's exactly what I continued to do to try to get into spaces to say, hey, you know, this is what happened. This is what I've learned. It may not look like everything else, but we have to find some way of talking about it. And now we realize as it has evolved, it's a part of every part of your life. We see it in politics. We see it in business. We see it in our personal lives. We see it all the time. We definitely see it in churches. And it's hard to talk about trusted spaces like the church. Even what it means to Black people, the Black church is the first land ownership that we had in this country being brought here as slaves. And so it's very personal for us. And so when we say, oh, no, we don't talk about politics in church. Yes, we do. Because we went to the church for everything. It, I mean, it was feeding us our knowledge. Our, it, it was a safe space. Um, that's where we had Sunday dinner. This is what these are the these are part of our culture that was taken away. That for once we had this one space that we can go to, and this is this is what we did. When you think about some of our greatest leaders and organizations that represent African Americans, it's out of the church. So it isn't that we can separate this thing. So to have a Jim Jones exploit everything and destroy everything that we believed and, and knew and valued about church, um, just being gone, 
that's that's a problem. That's a problem. Jeez, I, I wish we had another hour because there's like eight things you just said that I'm like, I want to comment on. And and I, but I love, I so I love that the nature of the podcast like surfaces these things. Like you just made that comment about churches and the black community and, and politics and where we kind of talk about everything. And I remember thinking um, my pastor made a comment, pol- a political comment, and it was harmful. The, the comment he made was kind of in spite of this person's harmful behavior, because he's black, we still got to follow him. I was like, I was in, in I'm in the right. congregation floored and I'm, <laughs> you know, and, and it's the logical part of my brain and the leadership person in me. And I'm just like, in that moment, I'm like, there's no way I can be here following you if you're advocating for, you know, and, 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 it, and I was so irate about right. it that he made this kind. And I was just like, how do you not know? But then it, it speaks to in, in churches, like the kind of duality that exists. Like we always honor our black leaders, but also they're doing some harmful things and we just, we won't pay attention to that. We'll look away. And I was just like, man, I must be young or new because this ain't, this is (laughs) for me. Unfortunately, I actually found another church that I'm super satisfied with. But when you say that, I'm like, and and in the, the massacre context, I'm like, wow, like that is incredibly deep. Um, I also think too, it puts into place, like if that happened, how many other moments like this have happened that we don't know about? I started That's reading right. a, a black history book written by Michael Harriet, and he goes back to like the beginning of the world to talk about black people in existence. And what I take away is it's uh, over and over and over again, these things happen. So, you know, you looked at that context. My next question is like, are there other massacres that have been disguised or, you know, and, and, and so anyway, my, my thinking brain goes there. But then I also think, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. So the last part, and this is just kind of going back to that IRB piece. Like I think about, I got scrutinized because I was asking faculty about teaching during turbulence. And a lot of the the conversation centered around um, toxic leaders, toxic leader behavior. My, my, one of my instructors says they're not toxic leaders. They're people exhibiting toxic behavior or something like that. But, but a lot of what you're saying about that, that how do you draw from this sensitive topic knowledge that's going to be useful and helpful in preventing or educating or enlightening, you know, it really just kind of floors me that you're able to go in there and and get that information. I'm just like, I wish there was a video of you doing all of this work just, I mean, strictly for the research purposes because of, of, because of how, like, how much we're not exploring because of the sensitive nature or the violence or just the, so anyway, I'll stop talking. Lately, I haven't been asking questions. I've just been putting my thoughts out there. Um, so I'll, I'll get my life together. But <laughs> I just kind of shared all of that with you. So no, it's, it's, um it's right on time. I will say that um, you mentioned about the, the, the comment that even though this person isn't the right person to follow, we're going to follow just because of the position. And we know that that's part of the whole power dynamics, right? That that followership piece comes as a result of what they represent, the position that they hold, just coming in with, with a collar. We're going to believe what they say. That was the danger with the Jonestown massacre. When... Uh, I interviewed during the focus groups. One of the things that they said that stuck with me was 
there was there was a, a point where he wasn't even speaking a word in the pulpit. There were messages of socialism. There was cursing in the pulpit. Everything that we know is wrong <laughs> became acceptable because he had introduced the agriculture project, and they were they were bonded together as family, and they were committed to the project. Forget him. Don't care nothing about what he said. We're here for the project. We're going to make this thing work. They believed in the project. So it moved from believing in him as father, believing in him as his um, special powers to heal people, um, his special healing uh, powers to forget all about that. We are here and we're committed to this agricultural project. We're going to go, we're going to cut our homes out in our whole living spaces, grow on food. We're going to do this in 3,000 acres of jungle, you know, total rainforest. And that's what we're here for. We are here to do this because we're going to have our own community and we're going to be separate from the government. And that began to to be appealing. So nothing he did was, was out of the ordinary. It was just to be expected because that's just who Jim Jones is. We're no longer committed. Um, so that's the danger in that. And then as we look at um, where we are today in just accepting people's position, we see that on the job. We, we see it all the time where we are very um, leader-centric focused. So what type of a leader are you? What kind of leader is your boss? Are they transformational? Hmm. And, and they make you want to think about that. But what we need to really be interested in is the whole leader-follower dynamic and be concerned about who is following that one person. Who was following that one person? What would make them? That was the part that I wanted to get to. It was only one Jim Jones. Why didn't they walk away? Like, why would you follow them? Why would you do that? And there isn't a thing appealing. When I did my research and I went to San Francisco and I spent hours and hours and days looking through all kinds of material. And I tell you, there wasn't anything that would make me think I want to leave my wonderful home to go there, right? Yeah. It just looked awful. That makes a lot of sense, though, because in that moment as it's happening, you're making like moment to moment decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So I think about like, I, it makes me think about some workplaces I've been in, right? Where you've seen, you know, if you worked in higher education long enough, you've seen a chair or two, you've seen a dean or two, you've seen a president or two, a provost or two or, or yeah. six three you know and it makes me think about when they start reflecting on that person's leadership they can bring up all of these things that were harmful or led to that person's downfall and you go with them because in those moments they're okay instead of having that opportunity to step back and look more broadly I also think how many times have we been in the workplace and our individual goals don't align with our organizational goals? And it feels like right. in that moment, his individual goals were one thing and their organizational goals were another thing. And they were hyper-focused on those goals, not realizing they were also complicit with his 
individual goals and how that showed up. And it just, it's, it's kind of like why reflection is such a big part of our learning and teaching that skill and teaching that practice is so important. So that in those moments, you can raise your hand and say, oh, I don't know what's not right, but ha have my church moment. Like when my pastor said that, I was like, mm, no, that's not right. I don't know quite how to say it, but I know we shouldn't be following that. And, 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 and it made me leave, but I didn't go in and say to the pastor, you can't, you know, say those things. They're harmful to the people you're serving. It was, this isn't the place for me. I'm going to go. And I wonder how many of those folks in, in that space, in, in the massacre, how many people left because they had those same red flags and just kind of. So they didn't have the opportunity to leave. Um, that's the part that is unspoken. Most people don't realize, but they didn't have the opportunity. Once in Jonestown, it was one way in and no way out. They collected the passports. They didn't let them leave. Pretty much a concentration camp. And so all of the advertising, all uh, everything that they saw and heard about Jonestown when they got there, that was not the case that, at all. And, and we can contribute that to the types of followers. Let's consider this, that I, I want to give credit to Toxic Trump right because you learn about those groups of environment like what what makes this um this person able to do the things that they do that we know are are bad and harmful to other people so when i think about jim jones he was a predator so my model and this was really funny because dr clanker and i we we were back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. She said, that's not a model. And I said, it is a model. She said, but it doesn't, models have the quadrants and, you know, it, it was typical. But coming out of an experience, I had to really make my case that this is what came out of the, the literature, the study itself. If I'm going to go into research, I don't want to have to always confirm what has already been done. This is for new learning, new experiences, new research. This is what innovation looks like. And she got it. She got it. And so mine is an eyeball. But it, it, in the center is the predator. Because you zoom right in on it. He, is, he, is, he was a predator who knew who to target. He knew... Um, and he prayed, Jim Jones prayed on African-Americans because of their loyalty to God um, and going to church. And if he were able to have that same level of loyalty, then he knew that he could control them. And he went from reverend to father. I even have letters that were shared with me with they refer to him as father. And so those kinds of things are, are, are what we have to look for. I refer to that in, in the book as the conditioning process. It's a conditioning process. If someone just walked up to you and said, yep, this has poison in it. Uh, I, you know, I love you. I want you to take this. You're not going to do it. But if I can get you to believe me and trust me over a period of time, it's that courting period that is wicked that you let your guard down. You let your guard down. 
and he, he was able to do that. But those are the, the experiences that we had as well. So you come to church, you love your church, you love the family people there. I mean, praise and worship is everything. And then the pastor says, we don't care about what he says, we're going to follow him. And then you have a second thought that that does not line up with values that I have. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing, I mean, you know, we kind of alluded to this a little earlier, but, you know, thinking about and Lauren was sharing, oh, you know, you've been at one university, you've been at them all, right? And, you know, I remember I had a, um, he, uh, he, he recently uh, retired uh, as a professor emeritus, but a, a great professor that um, was on my tenure and promotion committee the whole time I was, uh, I've been at the university. And, and uh, he used to say anytime a our provost would come into one of our college meetings and say something he didn't like. He'd say, oh, don't worry. You know, I'll still be here when the next provost comes. <laughs> and so, um, and I, and, you know, I, when he said that when I was pre-tenure, I'm like, Ike, you can't say that, you know, is what I'm thinking. But now I'm like, I can say whatever I want, right? You know? <laughs> but like we can't, sometimes it feels like we can't say whatever we want because of some of these dynamics that you've explored. And, you know, you, you had me thinking about um, I, I do this activity, um, and I don't remember how exactly it occurred to me to to try this out, but it's something I've probably been facilitating in my leadership classes since, I mean, I've been teaching for about 15 years, probably since for 14 or 15 years. And wow. there's this phenomenon of the French and Ravens, five bases of social power, right? There's the reward, there's the punitive, there's, was it legitimate, expert, and referent. And mm -hmm. so you were talking about that Jim Jones becoming like father and having reverence or reference, yes. you know, I think, which I think come from the same, the same yes. having this, this referent power, but he also had legitimate power, positional power being right. the father is not just, you have to earn that respect, which he did through his role, but he also has, you know, he, he is legitimately the leader of this, of this movement. What I have students do is I ask them to rank the five bases of social power in the order that they influence them personally. Wow. And so, they, so they think about, oh, if someone has reward power, does that mean more to me than if they have uh, punishment, you know, punitive power? Does it mean more if they have expert power? You know, we go through the definitions, whatever. I'm always astounded to see that there's, there's a distribution, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we're not all the same. And so and I've noticed a little bit, there's some themes, this might be some big research project I do someday, but, but you know, over 15 years, sometimes over a, a series of a couple of years, expert power is, is like the leader, right? Not everybody. It's never, I never have a full, a full consensus, but more people think that expert power is the most influential. Some might say, oh, no, no, it's positional power, you know, during the, um, during the first year of the Trump presidency, expert power went down a little bit. Because, yeah. you know, hey, the media, yeah. uh, you know, doesn't, you know, talking heads and the gotcha, whatever, you know, these types of things. So there's context, right, which is yeah. that you were bringing up. And so I, as I think about these things in all these different contexts, um, another thing that you had mentioned about that, you know, these people couldn't leave, right? They couldn't leave Guyana. Right. Um, how do you, with with things like, you know, more options for working, hybrid, remote, like, People can check out in ways that they haven't been able to check out before. And you can have this rise of toxic leaders um, in a lot of different types of ways, in a lot of different types of, of organizations. How, how are you how are you seeing, I guess, how are you analyzing this? Like what, what are some takeaways or, or observations or analyses that, that you're having as you're watching 
um, all these things happen around us. And, yep. Yeah. I think I'm, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's interesting. And one of the things that I will say is that social media is playing, uh, taking up a huge space here um, as it relates to expert power um, and, and believability, mm -hmm. right? So when you're looking at how, how is it that someone who we only see virtual has this level of control? We're, we're seeing two different types of outcomes. One would be to dismiss it because guess what? I don't have to be in that space. I'm just going to do what I do and that, that's it. I, I leave at the end of the day. Or you experience the quiet quitting where people show up because I need that pay, but I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to take this beast on, but I'm not going to do it. Or here's a third one where we're seeing that people won't tolerate that. They will not tolerate it and understand that the boundaries exist, whether you are in a physical or a virtual space. That what is not right is not right. What is not legal is not legal. What is toxic is toxic. Like you're not thinking that something is wrong with you. This is really taking place. As a matter of fact, I would think that a toxic leader in a virtual space is more dangerous than in a physical space because no one else can witness that all the time in a virtual space one-on-one. -on -one. We have teams meetings, we have this. And so it creates this untrusting environment. And so we know in the state of Maryland, it is illegal to record without telling people that you are recording. But can I tell you, whenever you hear an echo in the background, somebody is recording. <laughs> so that's that's part of it, right? Yeah, it, it hyperbolizes the ivory tower, right? I mean... <laughs> I mean, you have no, I mean, as soon as you log off Zoom, they're doing whatever, right? I mean, exactly we live like right. that in some, in some contexts, folks live like that for a couple of years and some just a couple of months, depending on your politics, right? And That's right. Yeah. I, wow. I mean, you, I hadn't even, or maybe I did, or maybe I, and just, <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you're shining a light on it in a way. Yeah. I'll say it's, it's so powerful though, the way you say it, like I, I think about, um, so, so I was having this conversation with, with colleagues and, and we're talking about like some kind of process. And I didn't realize we were all having the same struggle in this process. And we're, we're not technically virtual, but most of the meetings we have are virtual meetings. So those little informal conversations before or after aren't happening unless you're text messaging somebody. And so when you bring it out into the larger space of looking at toxic leader behavior, toxic follower behavior, it's like, you're right. You have no idea unless you've had a previous relationship with that person. And maybe you talk as friends or that's your colleague, like your, your work best friends, work best friends are the greatest thing ever. Maybe that's your work best friend and they're experiencing the same thing. Um, but yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, how about, you know, toxic behavior shows up as a form of deception. Nobody comes with the, you know, the horns and the tail and the red suit and pitchfork and shows up on your camera. And so other people's experience with this toxic leader is different. And so they're like, oh, you know, that didn't happen with Bob. No way. He's just a wonderful.
hateful person, right? No. That, well, that may be just you on a bad day, you caught them on a bad day. It's unbelievable because in these virtual spaces, they can switch up and no one else will ever see what you see. So it gets to be very, um, very tricky. But what I will also say is that whenever um, we are facilitating from a, a, about toxic followership, that we have to talk about the courage that it takes to address reasonable or not to others and how important it is to find your allies to support you prior to bringing out the information because you already know that they have mastered it. And people do this for different reasons. Um, sometimes it's, they just don't want you in that space or they don't think you deserve that space or that's just the kind of person that they are. There's no real well, one reason for that. And, and I think it's important as we continue as educators that we make sure that we get that point across that we have to have the listening ear. We have to have the empathy when people are sharing, whether it's our experience with them or not, to not dismiss it, but to explore what is happening so that we don't get these. I always think about, I always go back to the older um, situation with Enron. Uh, then we had Wells Fargo. You know, I had a professor one time who said, whenever something goes bad in, in an organization, always look at how the employees were incentivized. And that could be the beginning of a, 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 a seed for you to explore where this when you 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 you're making my brain do like backflip. So like as we're talking about you know, so I'm thinking about that that activity that I run right with the five different bases yes. of social power. And the question I always ask students after we talk about the distribution, and I'll say, oh hey Lauren, you said expert power was your number one. How so? Wendy, you said you know coercive was your number one. So the and then the 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 exit question is what implications does this have for lead, the leadership followership relationship or the leader follower relationship? You're just at, you've just gone through almost every single one of the five bases. And now you're, how are, how are people incentivized? That's reward power, right? That's right. Punished. That's punitive. That's right. power. How are, right. I'm, I'm, you're blowing my mind. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, what I like though, Wendy, is you. it feels like you're dropping these like breadcrumbs, like these little tips, yeah. like you said, you have to have the courage to speak up. My first thought was, so when I, whenever I start experiencing what I feel like is, is challenging behavior, I always, I'll write it out. And, and I, t I actually took this from lawyers and, and one of the, one of the, and I can't think of what the position was, but um, that person was memoing everything that happened. And so in my space, I started like sending myself documentation emails because I would forget the stories. Sometimes writing it just helped me process. Mm -hmm. But then after I had like the 10th documentation email, I was just like, okay, so there's a problem. And it gave me that courage to speak up and say, hey, I've noticed these things. And so then I had a leader who was very good. She was like, oh yeah, tell me more. What are you thinking? Okay, give me a little more detail. Why in this? And then afterwards, it was kind of like, well, why don't you start collecting documentation? And I kind of like whipped my phone out and I was like, well, do you want my Apple notes or do you want my email? Like, how do right. you, what's your personal? And it was simply because 
I didn't look at it as like this one moment to stand up. I looked at it as let me build my confidence. And the way I built my confidence was, was not like complaining to my colleagues. It was, let me start writing these things down because the writing process is going to help me cool off. It's going to get it out of my system. But then it also gives me a little data to work with. It gives me a little, like if I can say, okay, 10 times in eight months, there's an issue. Whereas if I look back at it and I'm saying, okay, you were overreacting then it can help you really think about what the real problem is, not the person, but maybe the problem is. And it gives you a little bit so that when you do speak up, you're confident in your space. Now I say that worked for me, but I have a feeling you have like more strategies or tactics or or things leadership educators can use or teach um, their students when they run into these spaces where they're, they're engaging with people or exhibiting toxic. Yeah, I would say to definitely uh, never compromise your integrity or your values. Stand by them. That is, that's your sanity check. That's your internal sanity. Just don't compromise. Um, I remember when I was asked, because my background is corporate. I'm in academia now, but my background is, is corporate. And, and the truth is, I was given a document and my manager says, just sign it. And in my role, I reported to him and what he brought to me, I should have just signed it. And I said, well, let me read it. Just just sit there, I'll read it. And he said, no, just sign it. And I said, well, what is it? He said, don't worry about it, just sign it. And I said, no, why would I just sign it without reading it? And he said, well, I'll read it to you. And I said, no, I'll read it and, and then I'll sign it. Let me, let me. And he huffed and puffed and he knew he wasn't going to get away. And when I read it, I said, no, I'm not signing it. And it was unethical for me to sign this document. And while I really got along and had respect for him, it made me think twice that I can no longer trust him because he tried to trick me. And so that broke and and it really hurt because I really, you know, we really got along, but even with the conversation um, with that, it's like, oh, you know, you're too strict. You follow policy, don't compromise because that is the beginning of turning over your power to someone who can very well um, just overtake you uh, either by intentionally or not, let's put it that way, intentionally or not, it's wrong. And so I always say to, to definitely never compromise your, your values and integrity and follow policy. You can never go wrong. If you say no, and I remember being um, expected to attend, attend meetings and do different things because this was asked by a leader, but it wasn't, what was taking place was not right. And so I went to the meeting and I expressed what was not right about that and how we can make this different. And it was not well received at all. And so then I didn't go, but it ran up the chain that, oh my goodness, this is insubordination. And when I put up policy, you can't argue with policy. Policy is just that. So I always remind people to 
that safe spot is always following policy. Never compromise your integrity or your values and follow policy. And hopefully that, you know, that type of, I guess that approach coupled with a little bit of critical thinking, right? Yes. <laughs> Enough to shield us from some of this uh, toxic leadership and, and keep ourselves from transforming ourselves into the toxic followers. Um, but this has been just such a great, great conversation. And I'm so glad uh-huh. we were able to to have you on. I'm curious. Um, well, I, I know that. Um, and, and um, well, I'm inviting you to um, talk a little bit about, um, you know, your role co-chairing the 2024 Global Followership Conference in April at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. And then certainly, too, if there's anything we didn't ask you that you want to make sure to share with our listeners. Okay. So I will always try to end with the thing that I I want people the context around that we hear all the time. And that is don't drink the Kool-Aid. People say we got to get everybody to drink the Kool-Aid. It's one way or the other to have respect for those live with losing generations of their loved one massacre. And that's where that term came because it was Sinai that was um, in the, and it wasn't Kool-Aid, it was Flavor-Aid. So even the saying is wrong, but it's it's also quite insensitive. And so while people use it in a joking manner, there isn't anything funny about people losing their lives for what they believed in, which was the project, you know, where at the end, they say, you know what? It was a good idea with the wrong person. And so I want everybody to, within the sound of my voice, to always think about not using that term just for that reason. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and it it gives you know whole new whole new meaning to that because I think you know like there are things that people might just you know drop and not really understand the origins of um, of these types of things, or or maybe they don't you know, understand the depths of the origins of, of, of some of the things that they, that they share. So, yeah. Well, for the 2024 global followership conference, that (laughs) is going to be so much fun. Way excited. Um, co-hosting with David uh, Dave Scott. And so we are really looking forward to going to Scotland. We also have our students conducting research um, from Bowie State in the business community, the need to go in and not just show up, right? But to have an understanding of the culture, the people, um, the any of the marginalized there as well. And what is it that we can do from, you know, looking at it in diversity, leave it a better space? Um, how do we have that impact? How do we um, make new friends and, and provide support for anyone building relationships both ways? Uh, I just think it's, it's phenomenal. And so I'm really excited about that. And um I can't say more about it except that I think that everybody, whether you are a practitioner, an educator, just the interest in understanding what followership means in the leader following dynamic, one without the other, that this is the situation of the life. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a fabulous conference, and I'm excited to start booking my travel soon. 
So, <laughs> so uh, but folks can check it out. At, uh, if you go to followershipconference.com, there's all types of information on there. And there's there's still a, a smaller call for proposals. The the main call has has uh, has come and gone, but there were, there's some lightning talks and some other things that you can still get involved in if you're if you need that to to get your funding or or what have you. So, um, but um, again, Wendy, thank you so 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 much for your sharing your insights and on your research and uh, on and followership. It's just a, been a brilliant conversation, and um, I hope I'll see you in Scotland and. Um, and April, and best of luck to you and all your academic and scholarly pursuits. Thank you so much. Leadership educators who may have a little trouble coming up with creative learning activities to further their course and program learning outcomes are now able to meet with Dan or me to discuss the process they use to ensure engaged and inclusive learning environments. Or if you're an academic leader, looking for an external reviewer, Dan brings years of experience in education, evaluating leadership programs. Contact us via LinkedIn today. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura J-B. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars. As the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.